Well, good morning. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, or I hope you have a device that can connect to the Wi-Fi signal. If you are, if you've never connected to our Wi-Fi signal here before, you can search for one of those Centralia Church something. But the, the password is Centralia Church, all lowercase. Um, all one word. So hopefully you can navigate to that. If you have your, I'm an old-fashioned Bible reader. I love just having the book. And so we're in Acts chapter 17 this morning. And I know you just sat down, but will you stand up? I want to read this story right away. Uh, a couple of things that are just on my, my mind this morning. Um, one is... <clears throat> I want to look at Paul's strategy. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And and I want to offer you a a challenge throughout the whole thing. So keep those two things in mind. We're going to kind of unpack a little bit of um, more about what Paul is doing and how he's doing it, um, this ministry in Athens. Uh, And then two is I hope that throughout you might find uh, some things that may challenge you where you are, uh, both personally, but also uh, in how we reach out to uh, those around us. So I'm in Acts chapter 17, and we are uh, going to begin with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I asked permission for this. Um, I wanted to share a goal that Lisa has with you in her life right now. And the, the stated goal, this is her speaking to me, is to, and I quote, turn me into a coconut and tofu-loving vegan. <laughs> There's a riot going on in my soul right now. So I want to tell you a, a little bit about a journey that she and I have been on since mid-January, right? Um, it was back then I was having some digestive system issues. And she is a very studious person who's always been interested in dietetics and nutrition and things like that. And so she was doing some reading and she said, I think I can fix that. And of course I was interested and so the plan to fix that was to, to transform our eating habits, to transform what we eat, um, moving away from what it was to something that's more whole food plant-based. Did I get it right? Um, and so we, we just kind of shifted our whole eating plan in our house. And, and one of the things that this kind of an eating plan does is it eliminates foods that we consume that cause inflammation in our bodies. And so some of the things that, that cause inflammation which lead to uh, other, other things are stuff like uh, sugar, high fructose corn syrup, dairy, red meat, and processed meats, refined carbs, trans fat, hydro hydrogenated oils like vegetable oil, those sorts of things are not really good for us. They cause inflammation, and I don't want to get too sciencey, as she would say, but uh, the net result of all of these, if they go on just prolonged and, and unchecked, and if you just look at the health of the American culture, this stuff sort of makes sense, um, leads to things like uh, cellular damage, heart disease, cancer, digestive system issues, and, and the like. Uh, Ann Wigmore, she is um, with the Natural Health Institute. She says it this way, the food you eat can be either the safest and most powerful form of medicine or the slowest form of poison. 
that ought to get our attention just right there. So basically, the American diet is killing us, is, is what she's saying. Um, we eat lots of junk. That's just a true statement. If you look at the way we spend our money, the places that we visit, uh, fast food is easy, that's lots of calories in a hurry that aren't necessarily nutritious calories. Um, these sorts of foods tend to be a little bit cheaper, and so they're just it's so easy to con consume them. We get caught up in it, and it, it doesn't help that they all taste like really good. <laughs> and so when something tastes really good and it's not that good for you, it becomes addicting. And so we consume way too many calories that are, are not healthy. But if we start eating the right sorts of foods, if we consume calories that are rich in nutrients, we can, we can change our health for the better and actually minimize our risks to some of those diseases. So when we changed our eating, it was not an effort to, or it wasn't, we didn't go into it thinking we need a diet so that we can lose weight. It was more to um, have longer term health benefits. And so I'm telling you this because it's a little bit of a personal testimony that we're going to get to something in a little bit that connects with, with Paul's observation of the Athenians. But I can tell you, since mid-January, I feel a whole lot healthier. Um, I have a lot more energy. Um, my digestive system issues are pretty much gone, so she was right in that she could fix that. Um, I was one who had chronic headaches. And so I, I went through a lot of the popping the, the pain pills to just dull the pain in my head. And one of the things unanticipated in this was uh, my headaches are almost completely gone since the middle of January. And you know, we thought, okay, if we change our eating to this, where we go more veggies, less animal protein and meat, obviously we're going to lose a little bit of weight. And so I thought, well, you know, I probably have, you know, five, ten pounds to spare. Uh, I'm down almost 35. I didn't know that I had that much to lose. Anyway, that's not to do anything except to say that my wife is awesome. Um, <laughs> yes. <clears throat> But the other thing is, I was thinking about this text this week, and Brother Paul and his strategy going into an, a new area in Athens that is known for, it's kind of the seedbed of philosophy and ideas and so forth, and so there's this, there's this big gap between Paul's faith and the, the religious practices of the people of, of Athens. See, he noticed that they were filling themselves with the wrong things. They were consuming in their religious culture a whole lot of empty calories. Things that would occupy their time and occupy their minds that were leading to disease and, and unhealth in 
um, some physical ways, uh, spiritual, emotional, and, and all of those sorts of things. When you consume the wrong things, you're not going to be a healthy person. And Paul noticed this. And at the very beginning of our passage, we're told that Paul is waiting in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up because they were chased out of the last town. Paul got away, escaped with his life. He came down here to Athens. He was only there to wait for Silas and Timothy. Now, asking Paul to wait for anything and just, okay, I wonder when they're going to show up. I see all these people over here. And so Paul, he begins to, he's just walking around and he's, He's looking at things. Oh, look at this guitar, and I wonder if they worship that, and oh, music must be really important, entertainment, and you know, he's looking at all the things in the city, and he's, he's distressed by what he sees. He sees all of these forms of, uh, these objects of worship, idols, shrines, temples, and he's watching how the people interact with these deities and, and the shrines that represent their deities, and it makes him sick. The word distressed there, if you trace it back in the Greek language, it's attached, it's, it's, it's very similar. It comes from the word of see, for seizure. So Paul is walking around Athens observing their religious climate and, and he's having a seizure. Well, he's having a fit. It's stressing him out. It's, it, is, it is moving him in compassion because he sees all of what they are feeding themselves with. And he looks at the product of their society and he says, these are spiritually unhealthy, broken people. And they at this point, don't know what healthy things they should be putting into their lives. So I better do something about it. So it would be like Paul is waiting. He gets a, you know, he, he sees all these things. It would be like if you were, oh, let's say, flying um, through Vegas to another destination. And you were, you were landed in Vegas, and you had like a 24-hour layover, and you were waiting for some friends to catch up, and then you were going to catch a flight together to somewhere else. Well, you don't want to sit in the airport the whole time, and so you walk out the door, and you start walking around. And you notice things about culture and society. If you walk out your front door, you don't even have to walk out your front door. If you just click on your TV or surf the Internet at all, you will see all of the objects that we put up as things to worship. Your TV is even maybe one of them, depending on how you use it. So I guess it is a, a question for us to consider is, as we go out and about, as we walk around and observe our culture, does it distress you? Are, are you bothered by some of what you see out there? When you see what people are throwing themselves at, when you see what people are sacrificing all sorts of things for, do you see the unhealth 
building in that? Does it provoke you? Does it move you with compassion in such a way that you might be willing to step out and engage in dialogue? And what the term I've coined this week is become a soul dietitian. When you see problems that are out there, when you see how people are broken and hurt and longing for things, does it bring you to the point where you can say, I know a way you can fix that? It's by not consuming these things and maybe start with a healthy diet of, of these sorts of spiritually nutritious calories. Because I got to say, if you're not moved by it, then maybe you're worldly. Maybe we are worldly. If we can walk around and just say, well, you know, I guess there's, you know, they're free to live however they want, and there's not much I can do about it. Maybe we haven't been gripped by the transformative power of the gospel quite yet. Well, Paul, he's walking around and, and he, he decides to act. He's moved in compassion. And, and so if you start to look at how he goes about this, in verse 17 it says that he started to reason with the people. Started in the, the local synagogue there. He would talk to anybody who would listen. I can imagine Paul doing that. He's not a bashful guy. And some of the philosophers that are around, they begin to debate with him. And in that time, you heard me say, read that he was accused of pushing new ideas. In Athens, the only ideas that were discussed, the ones of, of major importance and relevance and weight were the old ideas. Anything new is viewed kind of as, oh, it's kind of fly by the seat of your pants sort of things, and, you know, where did you get that idea? And so when they say, that, well, those are new ideas, that's, they're, st they're starting to slap him already. Like, no, 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 you're out of line here, buddy. So they call him a babbler, which the imagery there is kind of interesting. It's the, the word for, for babbler there. If you picture a bird just kind of picking up a seed here and, and there and just collecting them all together. It's, they're accusing him of just, oh, you're taking something from here and there and here and there, and you're throwing it all together. So it's like borrowed ideas that you're smashing together to try and make a point. It's in the same category when they say you're a babbler. It's in the same category that we would put gossip in. You hear a bit here, you hear a bit there, and you smash them together, and you start promoting something that's not even close to the truth. That's what they're getting after Paul about. You're pushing the foreign, you're pushing foreign deities, which they didn't really have what we enjoy today in the freedom of religious expression. And so Paul was pressing the boundaries here of breaking the social law. Like, you just don't do that. So Paul is uh, engaged now with the philosophers. About 500 years before Paul uh, was in Athens, there was another famous philosopher. You may have heard of him. His name is Socrates. Socrates, anybody? Yeah. Famous guy. Well, he was accused of the exact same thing that Paul was being accused of right now. And he was invited to present his case, to share his ideas at a place called the Areopagus. 
Paul's been invited to speak at the Areopagus. Areopagus was not only just a place, but it was also a group of people, and it was like the, um, it was like the highest court of public opinion in the land. Not an official court, just public opinion. So Paul is about to go to the Areopagus and present his ideas. Socrates went there 500 years earlier to, to debate similar things, and Socrates lost that argument, and he paid for it with his life. So the stakes are kind of high for Paul here as he goes here to present these new ideas to these people. He's risking his life to proclaim Jesus. We get to verse 22, and as he begins, uh, he knows that he's headed towards Jesus. If you read Paul, the goal and the destination of his preaching is always Jesus. His death, his resurrection. Uh, So he preaches the cross and ends with the resurrection. So he's headed there, but he doesn't start there. Because he recognizes the drastic differences that he has with the people of Athens. Their worldviews aren't even close to being the same. And their understanding of of deities, Paul, monotheistic, uh, people of Athens, you know, they had a whole pantheon of gods that they would approach. And so he begins by... Praising their request, they're praising their quest for divine knowledge and truth. He, he's walked around their city and seen that they are searching for something. He sees that these gods hold a significant place in their society, and he commends them for it. Hey, I, I see that you are searching for the truth. But he modifies his typical strategy. Normally we see Paul go into a place, usually it's the synagogue, and we see him open the scriptures. It says he would preach and teach from the scriptures. And what he would do is he would open the pages of scripture that they had. So for us, think Old Testament, as that's the scriptures that were uh, in circulation at the time. And he would unpack and teach the people how the Old Testament pointed that the Old Testament's fulfillment was in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that was where he would start normally with a text. I'm going to take a text or multiple texts and I'm going to show you how the result of those points to this person, Jesus, who I want to tell you about. But in Athens, as he's at the Areopagus here, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He knows that he can't start with Scripture because the Scriptures to those people hold no authority. The, the Scripture for them is just another book of writings, and it doesn't mean anything to them. And so if he were to start with Scripture, something that they don't, something that they don't give any power or authority to or, or believe that it can speak into their lives, it's really hard to start quoting Bible verses if they don't, if they don't honor Bible in the first place. Which makes me wonder about our evangelistic strategies today. It makes me wonder about the way that we share the story of Jesus and the salvation that can, is only found through God. When we go out into our culture, when we speak to our non-Christian friends, 
it may not be the best thing to start with a book that they don't give any authority to. Now, that's hard. That's a hard pill for us to even consider because it sounds like, well, you're, you're going to take the Bible out of the equation? No. I want to listen. I want to listen and I want to observe and I want to hear what people value. I want to learn about what is important to them. If I know my scripture well enough, I can listen for points of contact. Hey, you know what? I really hear that you're searching for the truth. I wrestled with trying to find the truth at one point in my life as well. Would you like for me to share my journey and where I found that source of truth? I mean, if you have a point of contact, if you're in a conversation and people give you permission to share your own story, then you can bring in the Word of God into it. Like, I found the Bible as a source of strength and life, something that teaches me things and gives me purpose and direction and some guidance in how to live. It's a source of truth. And I believe it's the ultimate truth. But if people don't give you that sort of permission then to beat them over the head with Bible verses, maybe doing them a disservice. How, how, what, if we, what would it look like if we adopted the strategy of Paul to walk around and observe and, and listen and engage with the culture that we're trying to speak into? Well, verse 23 goes on as he says, as I was walking around, I noticed a shrine with the inscription that it was to an unknown God, or I like to call it a just-in-case God. Hey, you know what? There's thousands of them out on display here, but just in case we don't have the right one, we need to set one up that says, well, this one covers everything else. If we haven't got it with all these other ones, this one right here, it's unknown. We're not sure what it is, who it is, but we have our, all of our bases covered now. And Paul sees that. He's like, I think that I could use that one right there in my conversation. So he used something that was familiar to them. This shrine to the unknown God was familiar to them. Um, and so he used that to introduce something that was unfamiliar to them. Paul tells them, well, you're kind of ignorant in this. I mean, you're, you're even saying that you're ignorant because you don't know who this God is, but you're going to worship him anyway. So you're sort of ignorant because you don't know who you're worshiping. And so that's the point where I want to make a connection, he says. I want to tell you about this. Let me tell you about this God. And then he goes into his speech. And we could read his speech in, oh, 90 seconds, two minutes, if we'd slow down. The people who spoke in the Areopagus typically would present for a couple, two, three hours. So Luke is likely just giving us the outline 
of Paul's theology, the outline of what Paul was sharing with these people. And so you can go and you can spend a whole lot of time just digging into each of, of, of the phrases. I'm more concerned this morning about the strategy that he's employing here to engage in dialogue. But as we look at his speech, verse 24, he, he tells the people that this God is, he is the creator God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples. He cannot be contained is what he is saying. He's greater than all of your structures combined. You have temples set up for each of your gods or, or statues and, and shrines and, and altars and all sorts of things. The, the God that I am proclaiming to you can't be contained in any of those things. This Hebrew God transcends creation. So nothing material can actually represent him. He is infinite, whereas the Greek gods of the day... Um, were finite gods. They were powerful, they were superhuman in some ways, but they had similar limitations as humans. So this was kind of a, a new concept to them. Their, their deities uh, had jurisdiction, if you will, like boundaries. So uh, I wrote a couple of them down. Uh, the goddess Artemis was the goddess of prosperity and money. So if you were looking for uh, wealth, you would go visit the shrine for Artemis. If you um, needed wisdom or something in the political arena, hey, I want everybody to vote in this direction, we're going to go visit um, Athena's temple. If you, if you want to win in an athletic contest or have a military victory, you're going to see the goddess Nike. If you, um, you know, these days, if you, you can go to... Um, you can date online these days, and so you can go to the internet and find, you know, people, eHarmony and the like. Uh, and back then, they had a similar sort of thing. You would just go to the temple of Aphrodite. Hey, I really need a significant other. Can you help me out? If you needed help, if you were struggling with disease, uh, you would go to the shrine of Asclepius. If you were traveling by boat, you'd go to Poseidon. So you, all of their deities had jurisdiction around some area. So if you were looking for something specific, then you would go visit that shrine. Paul is saying, creator God is way bigger than all of that. You can't confine him to a temple or a little statue. He's not an action figure that you can control and play with. Verse 25, this God, in fact, has no needs. You don't have to provide anything to this God for his existence. Verse 26 and 27, this God has a purpose, and he is accessible. He is not distant and aloof. He is near. One of the things that uh, was believed at the time were that, that the gods that they worshipped were aloof and distant and just far off, and they were, they were that the gods... Well, they didn't want to dirty their hands with human affairs, and so they just kind of took a hands-off approach and just stayed far away. And God said, no, this God is so, he is so big, he is so transcendental, he, he, is, he is this creator God that can't be contained, and yet he is so very imminent. 
He is so close to each one of us. He desires that relationship. He is a personal God. Yes, he's big, but he desires to be in relationship with each and every one of us. These are things that are blowing their minds. There's not a a framework of of reference as Paul is presenting these ideas to this people. Verse 28 and 29, this God is your source of life. He doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. Our existence, it's not random, but our existence comes out of God's existence. We exist because he said we should exist. Therefore, each life has dignity and purpose and worth. And then Paul goes on and he quotes a couple Greek poets. So you heard him say, in him we live and move and exist. That was a quote from a Greek poet a couple hundred years previous. It was a quote about Zeus. And Paul is not affirming the existence of Zeus or equating God with Zeus. He's not doing that. What he is doing, he's demonstrating by their own admission. He's using their words, things that they have come to believe, by their own admission, the reasonableness of believing in this kind of a personal God. We find our existence in him. And then we get to verse 30 and 31, and and Paul says, God has overlooked all of this ignorance in the past. And he has made a way to make it right. And the way is the person of Jesus Christ who came, who was crucified, dead, and buried, but was raised to new life. And so while God overlooked this ignorance before, he's not ignoring it now. And there's a point that you're going to need to come to where you repent, where you turn where you acknowledge that, you know what? I have been ignorant. I have not known these things. I have been consuming the wrong sorts of things, and I can turn around because God made it possible for me to turn around. He gave me something to turn around to. So what Paul is doing is he is... Paul's attempt is to expose the false answers that they are holding. Before presenting Jesus as the answer to your friends, you may need to show that their current answers aren't working very well. I had a friend who's a co-worker, and of all places where we had a, a business training conference, it was in Las Vegas. Uh, he would, if you described him, just easily described as he is a worldly guy. So we're at this conference in Vegas for more days than we needed to be there. And after the sessions ended during the day, well, 
Uh, he enjoyed Las Vegas. We understand that. He enjoyed Las Vegas. Um, there's lots of ways that you can get yourself in trouble in Las Vegas. Yes, you know these things? Um, after a couple nights of just way too much drinking and gambling, we were sitting in the room the next day and, and I, I asked him the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Are, are you finding what you're looking for? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it looks like you're searching for something. But it seems to me like every time you think you have found what you are searching for, it comes crashing down. And it starts your search process all over again. You're back to your emptiness. So my question is, are you, are you satisfied with that? Is, that? is that what you want? It's a way of asking, is your God, whatever you choose God to be in that moment, whatever your idol is, whatever your habit, whatever the empty thing is that you're consuming, is that God worth the things that you're sacrificing it for it? And he said, no, no. And I just simply started the conversation by reminding him, this isn't what we are created for. That there's another way. Would you be open to hearing about it? I wish we had longer. We had sessions that were starting. That's, you, you kind of have to bring down some of those walls with people. Like, is, is it worth it? Are, are you really finding what you're looking for? Is there long-term satisfaction in that? Or do you just feel like you're on the spin cycle and there's always a crash and then you re-engage, crash, re-engage? Paul sees that the people of Athens, they're, they're searching for something, filling themselves with things and ideas and coming up continually empty. And he calls them to this point of critical engagement, and that point is called repent, he says. Start filling yourselves with the goodness of the one true God. Change your diet. Don't just add this God to the rest of them, have this God replace all of them. He's big enough. He's big enough. So it's worth asking you, what are you, what are you searching for? What are you searching for? If you look around, people are searching for all sorts of things. Some may say, God or a greater being or spirituality is kind of the buzzword of, of our day. Some people are searching for meaning or joy or 
health or happiness or a sense of belonging. Some people are searching for wealth or peace or fame or love. There's all sorts of things on the list of the things that we're searching for. And if you're honest, we go about our culture and we try and find expressions of those things in all sorts of idols. It's not much different than the people of Athens. We're just this much further along in time. But we're wrestling with the same exact concept. I think every one of us in this room would say that at some point or another we feel like we are searching for something that is missing. And off we go. So what are you, what are you filling yourself with these days? What calories are you consuming? Is it stuff? Money, technology, politics, pornography, unhealthy expressions of sexuality, is it self-righteousness? Like, I'm just, I know my way and I got it all figured out and everybody else is wrong. Is it power? What, what is it that you're eating? And are you feeling empty? Because you're, at the end of the day, you recognize maybe I'm just not consuming the right stuff. We need to evaluate that. We need to bring that out and lay it in the open and give it to God and, and maybe talk about it with some of our close friends. Because what happens for lots of us is we, we dabble a little bit here. And I can consume, I can consume this because it's, it's helping me just a little bit. And I can see all of the really horrible negative effects that long-term exposure to this will have in my life. But I'm strong enough. I can handle it. It won't happen to me like it happens to other people. And so we just keep consuming these unhealthy calories. But before you know it, we're consuming more and more and more. And then we find out that, you know what, maybe I just wasn't as strong as I thought I was. And we find ourselves in cycles and habits of, of addiction. So you need to come to a point of, of repentance. You need to begin taking steps of obedience. Let God fill you with his word and with his Holy Spirit. See, obedience begins with our diet. Obedience begins with what we put in. What you feed your body matters. What you feed your mind matters. What you feed your soul matters. You can choose the easy and empty things that lead to disease and destruction, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, or you can consume the nutrient-rich calories of God's Word. Psalm 1 talks about, um, it talks about the Word of God. 
using the language of the law. And it's like those who meditate on the word of God, those who consume the word of God are like trees who are planted by a stream. I read a story uh, this week where there was a, was, I think he was in high school at the time, or, or maybe even it was uh, elementary school, and it, they were going through a conservation project at school, and so every kid in the class uh, went home and they had this little maple tree sapling. And this is in Oklahoma, and so he's saying, you know what, I really didn't care at all about the maple tree because pretty much anything we planted there, it just died not too long later because we'd either forget about it or it would just get too hot and dry. And he's like, so we'd, we just kind of randomly planted the tree with my dad in the backyard, and he's like, it was like a miracle because that tree just started to grow. And a couple years went by, and this, this tree just is, was growing faster than anything that they had ever seen grow in Oklahoma. Time went by, and, and now it's providing shade to the yard, and some of the branches were, you know, like hanging over the fence, and they had to prune it back so it wasn't going into the neighbor's yard. And he's like, it just was amazing. We had no idea what had happened or why this one particular, this was like a super tree, one day we were out by the mailbox in the front yard by the street and we noticed that there was like water just kind of puddled up around our mailbox. It's like we looked into it and it turns out that there was like a shallow underground stream. And you know what? The stream, the, the, the tree that we planted was dead center of the stream. And so it had constant, a constant water source, constant nutrition to feed that tree. And it took off. And it's a beautiful picture of what happens when we root ourselves in the stream of God's word, is that we can't do, it, we can't do anything but help to grow. When we firmly put ourselves in the word of God, when we meditate on it, when we take it in, as the calorie-rich food that we need, we will grow, and according to the word, we will bear fruit. And when you begin to get your own diet right, when you are feeding on the word of God and you're listening to the Holy Spirit and you are letting the gospel of Jesus transform your own life, when he's shaping your thoughts, when, when he is checking you on some of your behaviors and he is leading you towards the healthy food and you start living in this way, then you can look out around your culture. You can look across the halls in your house. You can, you can walk by the desks in your workplace and, and in the schools where you go to. And you can see people and what they're struggling with, and you can become a soul dietitian. You can enter, you can engage in these sorts of conversations, learn where people are at. And when you do that, it'll be obvious to you that they're eating the wrong stuff, they're consuming the wrong things. And you've learned something along the way about yourself and the way God's 
word works, the way the Holy Spirit comes alongside us to encourage and teach, to train us. And you can introduce healthy calories. You know, in the end, um, Paul had mixed results in, in Athens. Did you notice that? He came to the end. Some of them were, some of them wrote him off. Get out of here. The resurrection was one too many things that, for them to hear. Others said, you know, we're this place of ideas. You've said enough to earn the right to come back and share a little bit more. A couple believed. Two people named Dionysius and Damaris and some others. So there's a big debate amongst the scholars these days and all the way along, and the debate is, was Paul's efforts in Athens worth it? Was he successful? There's no record of a church being planted. There's no record of a congregation forming. And so I suppose if you were measuring success by worldly scales like that, then, and there are a fair number of people who feel like Paul failed in Athens. And their evidence is, well, if you look at how he starts to the Corinthians, he says, I'm going to do nothing but preach Christ and Christ crucified. I think I would argue on the other side of that. That Paul was immensely successful because Paul was obedient. He was obedient to the call of God in his life. He knew his own transformation, what he was to what he became. He had the power of the Holy Spirit living and breathing inside of him. The love of Jesus Christ had permeated his own soul so much that it bubbled out that he could not help but share it with other people. And he walked around that community and he was wrecked. He was broken. He was moved with compassion to the point, I need to help these people. And he stepped out in faith, risking his life, and he stepped out in obedience. And I think, that's the true measure of success in the Christian journey. God asks us to obey and to be faithful, which means we can trust him with any results. Amen.